0: Like to turn to page 310 in the Old Testament, you'll find 2 Samuel chapter 6. On page 310, if I were allowed to be flippant, I would say that this reading is the Old Testament prequel to Strictly Come Dancing. But there is a lot more to it than that. It's got some tough stuff in it, which I think Tim is going to elucidate a little later on, but you might like to be reminded of some background. David has now become the leader of Israel and its armies. He has reversed some of the setbacks caused by the Philistines. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. He has now captured it back. He has captured Mount Zion and plans to make it his headquarters and the seat of his palace, but it is not yet ready to receive the Ark of the Covenant, and so that has been parked temporarily in a house en route. So, with that preamble, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, his first wife and daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Um, when Des stood up, I wondered whether he was going to enact this morning's reading for us. You might be relieved to know <laughs> that I'm not going to enact this morning's reading. Uh, for us, which you can all breathe a sigh of relief for, as we'll come to in a second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would give us a bigger vision of you. And Father, would you also give us a clearer vision of ourselves. Father, would you break the shackles that prevent us seeing you more clearly but also seeing ourselves more clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I need to be pretty upfront with you straight away. Um, I can't dance. I can't do it. I can't dance. I'm rhythmically and choreographically challenged should I put it that way and the times I've been called to dance in my life. Uh, like, like, for example, we went to a party last night, but I just quietly went and chatted to lots of people. So that's a very Vickley-type thing to do, so that's all right. Uh, but actually, when I've been in chances where I have got to dance or do dance, so, for example, I went to the Jane Austen Ball a couple of weeks ago. Actually, although I'm dancing on the outside, I'm dying on the inside. I wonder whether you know that experience. It's a place where I feel deeply self-conscious this morning it's fair to say nobody likes to be embarrassed in fact most of us would do everything in our power to avoid being embarrassed at all costs but embarrassment helps us in the same way that some of our mistakes and some of our failures help us because they have the ability to refine us and they have the ability to keep us humble Embarrassment, in many ways, is like a spiritual antioxidant. They purge our egos of prideful impurities that become into our life. Some of them may cause us to cringe, others may cause us to chuckle, but one way or another, they help us to come to terms with who we are, and possibly, more importantly, who we're not. It's quite amusing, this week, uh, I've had probably three separate people come to me uh, at different times from members of this church and talk about incidents that happened to them. And actually at the heart of those incidents is issues to do with humility and to do with pride and the struggle to find the right place and the right way of living without seeing yourself above others or seeing yourself beneath others. Our pride, our language starts to reflect our hearts and before we know it we realise Maybe we're in a difficult place. Before I continue, I'd like you to speak to the person next to you, and I'd like you to, or someone near you, and I'd like you to share one embarrassing moment that you have had in your life that when you think about it, you wish nobody else knew about. Take courage this morning uh, to share to someone next to you. Okay, um, I, I can see there's some great stories out there. The, no, 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 I can see there are some great stories out there, some of which you may not want to share. Uh, I did feel like taking the, sorry, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt your kind of embarrassing story. I did feel as I could take the microphone round, uh, and that is those of you who are more extrovert, would love to lord in your mistakes and, and let everybody else share them. Those of you who are a little bit quieter would like to keep your head down and wish that you'd never been asked to do that exercise. Two, two, two things when I was thinking about this for myself that came to mind, one of which is when I was a student, I was at York University, and I was part of the group that led the Christian Union. And um, I, was, I was there, and we were about, I don't know, 200 people in this meeting we were at, and um, we'd been singing, doing what Christians do, we'd come to the end of worship, and I was responsible for this, and I was quietly, as I was worshiping, I was listening, what I thought was listening to God, and I thought, do you know, I think we need to sing this particular song. But rather than um, asking a musician to start, I thought, Do you know, I'll give that a go. I'll start it off. I started the wrong key. It was absolutely horrible. It really was absolutely horrible. And I still remember it today, where inside I just wanted to shrivel and hide. When Joe and I, before Joe and I got married, uh, Joe used to go uh, to the gym. And occasionally she used to persuade me that it's a good thing for me to do. And um, one of the things about being part of this gym, we, li- we were both living in Northampton, I think, at the time, is that there's a pool and then there was a- things like um, steam rooms. I don't know whether you've ever been to one of those things. Anyway, I'd, uh, we'd barely been in that. Anyway, I went this one particular time. I was in there and I, was, I don't particularly like gyms for various reasons. I won't bore you with that. But as we were there, I was sat on the side. I've been sitting there for about, I don't know, six or seven minutes and thinking, this is a pretty funny thing to do, just stand there and let hot air do whatever hot air does. And So I said, oh, well, I think I need to do some exercises. So I, there was nobody else other than John this. So I started to do, do some exercises, I started to do these things, and I started to do some stretching exercises, like this, you know, just make sure the muscles are moving. And actually at that point, there was a rip as my swimming shorts split in half in this gym in Northampton and quietly put my head around to see how many people were tried to find a towel and walked my way out of the, the gym in Northampton. Embarrassing moments are horrible. There's no doubt about that. But they can also be wonderful as they can free us from the burden of pretense. And it forces us to stop taking ourselves too seriously In a sense, embarrassment is one of the ways we can die to self, and dying to self is one of the ways we can begin to come to life again. The words humor, humiliation, and humility are all linguistically related. And maybe the healthiest, the happiest, the most whole people on the planet are those who can see and laugh at themselves the most and not take themselves too seriously. See, too many of us, and I include myself in this, can live our lives as though the whole aim of our lives is to avoid embarrassment. Often it starts at school, when I think about some of the blokes, particularly, I've talked to. Too many of us live in fear of standing up or standing out against the tide of the culture that we grow up in. So we don't put ourselves in a situation that might be awkward, where we might get embarrassed. Well, the consequences is, we forfeit joy. We never have the courage to reveal who we really are, so we forfeit intimacy. We never take risks, so we forfeit the God-given opportunities in our lives. And by the way, this is not uh, a celebration of social awkwardness. But we can allow embarrassment or our fear of embarrassment to get in the way of us and God We're too embarrassed to share our faith with anybody or friend, or to confront a friend who's going down a path that's leading to destruction, or in our personal life to walk away from a situation that is leading us in a bad place in a bad way. Sometimes there is a choice in life. We've got to choose embarrassment rather than hypocrisy. We've got to choose embarrassment rather than sin. We've got to choose embarrassment or obedience. Des has set the scene but let me recap a little bit. It's David's crowning moment. He's defeated the Philistines, he has recaptured the fortress of Zion, he's been anointed the king of Israel and now he's bringing back the ark of the covenant back into Jerusalem. The energy and the anticipation in this moment that David's going through is amazing. The advisors to David have scripted this whole entry back into into Jerusalem. Every word, every move has a certain significance, and it's all put together. And everything, everything is going to plan. And then David throws the plan out of the window. No one saw it coming. In fact, no one wanted to see it coming at all, in fact. As David begins to disrobe... And it's not a wardrobe malfunction. Mothers don't know whether to cover their children's eyes. His staff don't know whether to stop him doing what he's actually doing, thinking what an embarrassment. And a collective blush sweeps across the crowd. The king of Israel is down to a loincloth. Then David starts dancing like a little child and without a care in the world, no inhibitions, pure joy, as he celebrates what God has done. No one is sure what to make of it as he does that. That includes David's own wife Michal. As it says, as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, if you have the passage in front of you, uh, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. She was filled with contempt for him. Now this offers us a little bit of a warning this morning. When you get excited about God, don't expect everybody to share their excitement, your excitement. It can often bring out the worst in other people if you start to get excited about God and what God's doing in your life, what he's calling you to be and to do. You can end up reaping a harvest of criticism. After all, it's much easier to criticize other people, to judge other people, than it is to allow God to change us, to find the God-given purpose for our lives. Nine times out of 10 criticism, and particularly a critical spirit, it's a defense mechanism for fragile egos. But Michal isn't just critical. She's dripping with sarcasm, beautifully captured by Des. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David says to Michalow, it was before the Lord and you chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Remember, David was the newly appointed, newly crowned king of Israel, and this was his grand entrance into the capital city. Think Coronation Day, if you're looking for the significance of this event. And this added to the pressure upon a king on such a day, on such an occasion. Actually, the pressure on David to behave and to act the way that a king should was greater than it ever would be. Kings certainly don't disrobe. Kings certainly don't dance. And no one knew that better than Michal. After all, she was, a king, she was king Saul's daughter. She grew up in the palace. She knew protocol. Saul's wife knew protocol. And this, what David did, was not protocol. This wasn't protocol, what David did. That's not how a king should behave. But David didn't care less. His care was making sure that God was celebrated like God needed to be, like God could be, and God should be, even if it meant embarrassing himself in the process. You may notice, if you look at this passage carefully, there's a really powerful subplot in this scene, one of which is this. Bear in mind that the royal robes that David is wearing represent David's identity and his authority as the King of Israel. Like, for example, a priest's collar that I wear, like a policeman's uniform or a policeman's badge. Don't miss the significance of this. David finds his true identity and his true security as a worshiper of God Almighty. David disrobes to de- demonstrate his naked humility before God. He finds his identity and his security in the King of Kings. Ultimately, each of us live for an audience of one. Discovering your true identity always involves disrobing. You have to be stripped of the things you find your identity in. And it's only in doing that we begin to discover who God has created us to be and created us what what to do. So let me ask you this morning, what are the royal robes that you find your security and your identity in this morning? Is it based on who you are or whose you are? Is your identity based on what you can do for Christ? Or is it based on what Christ has done for you? Is your identity and your security in Christ alone? Disrobing means dying to self. Now here's the tricky thing in this. The idol is often something God has given us. Remember, it's God who's appointed and anointed King David as king of Israel. So his royal robes reflect a gift from God. And God gives us gifts, each one of us. Each one of us has gifts. Each one of us has been given things by God for his glory. But what's the problem? The problem is when we find our identity and our security in the gift instead of the gift giver. when we find the identity in the gift rather than the gift giver. When I started out uh, in ministry not that long ago, I tried to look like a pastor, I looked like, act like a vicar, and I tried to be a vicar. But true authority derives from authenticity, from honesty, and from vulnerability. I regularly try to share my weaknesses from those I spend time with in community and praying together and sharing together as we meet together. And that's not because I just want to give my stuff away and bleed over everybody. It's because as I share where I am and share honestly where I am. It amplifies and magnifies the greatness and goodness of God. Because disrobing is the courage to reveal yourself for who you are and who you aren't. I don't know whether you've had that experience. I've had it quite a few times where you meet a new group of people and someone meets you at this event and they call you the wrong name. So I've had an instance, for example, where I say I'm Tim and then someone calls me Mark. So someone calls me Mark and then I don't correct them. I don't correct them, say, no, my name's not Mark, my name's Tim. And then what happens then is you're marked that person, and then you meet them again, and they continue to call you Mark, and they call you Mark in front of other people, because you've never corrected them. And then before you know it, you're living another life as Mark, until you get to the point where it gets so socially awkward that you actually have to say, and that person never contacts you again, because it's been so embarrassing. But at first it's funny having an alter ego. It's quite funny thinking someone calls you a different name and continues to do that. But actually after that it becomes really awkward, really difficult. It's very difficult to keep up the pretence. It's exhausting to pretend, to try and see that. It's exhausting, we can't keep our card down. We can never relax into who we are. And we become trapped by the lie. And it takes tremendous courage to disrobe. In fact, as one writer said, maybe it's the rarest form of courage. In the words of um, A.W. Tozer, who wrote in in his book, The Pursuit of God, The Theologian and Writer, he said, the rest God offers is the rest of meekness, the blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. As many of you will know, there are, there are many, many choices each of us can make as what we base our identity on. You can base on your identity on how you look, or who you know, or what you do, or how much money you make, or what you do with what you make it. You can base it on your education, the degrees, the success of your job, or your achievements that you want to put in front of everybody else, on what you wear or what you drive. But all of us base our identities on something, And one of the challenges for us, particularly us in the West, is the more that we have, the more potential you have for having identity issues. Why? Because instead of singing as we've sung about relying on God's grace, you rely on your brilliant mind, your charming personality, your good looks, our wealth, or whatever else it is. Instead of living out the motto, in God we trust, secretly, It's in Tim I trust. And before we know it, pride has taken root, because it's really not about God's grace. It's about me. Long before the fall of Adam and Eve, there was the fall of Lucifer. It's one of the most ancient references in all of Scripture, but it's still our postmodern problem. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Beauty and wisdom should have been a catalyst to worship the creator. But Lucifer wanted to be worshiped himself instead. The creator has hardwired each one of us to worship. The question is, who are we worshiping? David had a choice as he entered into Jerusalem. Disrobing was David's way of saying, let me show you who I really am. Many of us will know as we go through different seasons of life, we can base our identity on, I don't know, on our education and how well we do. And then our education changes and we've got to adapt to maybe we get married and we base it on a marriage and then um, we get divorced and suddenly our identity goes away from us. We realize that we've based our identity in the wrong place, in the wrong season. And we realize there are poor foundations for us to build our lives and to build our identities. I think I may have said before, when I was growing up, um, actually a lot of the time here in Bath, actually I spent, my life and my identity was basically about playing sport. I loved sport, I was okay at sport, but it became a god and an idol in my life. And it took, actually, embarrassment and failure to break that, to break that idol in my life. Actually, to see God as Lord of all my life and to rededicate my life to Him. As our identity changes, as our circumstances life change, we can lose our footing, not adapting to what God is calling us to in each season. But if we base our identity in Jesus Christ, we're on solid ground. If your security this morning is found on the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to end, that they are new every morning, then you are on solid ground. If your identity is found in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you are on solid ground. If you have based your identity on the fact that Jesus Christ, God's only son, gave his life uniquely for you, be a saviour, to be your deliverer, to be your king, then Jesus Christ is your cornerstone. Jesus didn't spend his time, if you look closely through the gospels, Jesus didn't spend a huge amount of time with people who were big on protocol. Jesus' disciples were not the Pharisees. Jesus spent time with a range of other people. Who did Jesus spend time with? who were his disciples? Fishermen who took their nets out, left their nets to follow him. A prostitute who crashes a party at a Pharisee's house. A disciple who jumps out of a boat and swims to where he sees Jesus. Four friends who take their friend, they crack through a house and they lure him down into this house so that he can meet and find forgiveness and healing from Jesus. Jesus met people in unconventional ways. This is who Jesus celebrates. This is who Jesus is. Following Jesus isn't about protocol. It is about hunger, though. We've got to want to follow Jesus. It's about hungry for who God is and His hunger to meet us too. The willer so is a hunger that's willingness to fast and to pray for the lost to give to the poor, to serve those um, who need help and who care, to give our lives out to others, to bless others as we gather to worship and to bless others. It's to give generously with what God has given us. At this moment in time, as David comes back, the hopes and dreams of an entire nation have rested on David's shoulders. David is under massive pressure. David needs God, David demonstrates his desperation for God. Throughout my life I've pretty much grown up in churches and traditions that have called people to the front for prayer at the end if if they have a need. And to be honest, it's always pretty much an awkward experience when we do that. I'm in the no different to you, I sit in many services and I sit there and then quietly think, oh Lord, not me. I'm quite happy sat here. I don't need to go forward. It's awkward. Other people look at me. Other people think badly of me. Someone will think I've got some besetting sin I don't want to own up to. You know, it actually can be an awkward experience. Yet that awkwardness can also be an extraordinary moment of God coming in and blessing us as it can be a catalyst for growth, for spiritual growth and responding in obedience to what God is doing in your life to his prompting in your life, to learn to listen to what God is saying to you and to do something about it. If you know you need to respond in some way this week, come and ask someone to pray for you. It's a beautiful thing just to ask someone to say, could you pray for me? That's all it is. Because that's because God wants to do something in you and through you. And it takes courage to be the person to stand and say, do you know what, I can't do this on my own. I need others to hold me, to bless me, to enable me to walk in the path he's created for me. One of the challenges for us in the West is this, is that comfort often impedes spiritual growth. Our attempts to create comfortable environments can often produce weak trees that don't bear the fruit that God wants for us. God may be calling us to respond in some ways this week, whatever that is, I have no idea what's going on in your individual life, but God may be at work asking you to take a step of faith, to be, do something that's slightly uncomfortable for you. And you may need to swallow your pride. The thing is, if you don't respond to what God is asking you to do, our hearts start to harden, and our souls start to reduce. And it is in those awkward moments my experience continues to be often, I wish it was nice and straightforward, where God quietly just does things the way I'd like him to do it. But often for me, it's in those moments where God calls me to respond, to submit to others, to submit to him, where God begins a new work in my life. I wonder this morning, whether as we close, are you ready to embrace what God wants to do in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you give us the courage to take off our royal robes, the things that we find our identity in that hinder us being honest with you, being transparent with you, and enabling us to worship you. Pray you would enable us to lose our alter egos, those masks that we wear that prevent us surrendering all to you. Would you give us courage to take a step of faith this week? It may risk embarrassment, but it's a step along the way of what you're calling each one of us to take. And Father, I pray in all of this, you would also enable us not to take ourselves too seriously, for it's your glory that we're here to bring. In Jesus' name, amen.